Michael Fabiano is at it again. <laughs> I mean, this guy. This guy. This guy. He writes on Twitter, if someone is the next Dak, it has to be Deshaun Watson. Well, it doesn't have to be Deshaun Watson at all. Those covering the Houston Texans are projecting Deshaun Watson to be the number three quarterback for the Houston Texans, despite what Bill O'Brien is saying, that Deshaun Watson's the most polished rookie quarterback he's ever seen. I don't disagree with that. Deshaun Watson is absolutely more polished than Matt Castle was coming out of USC for the Patriots. More polished than Ryan Mallett coming out of Arkansas. Yes, yes, Bill, yes. All true. And Deshaun Watson and Dak Prescott are similar athletically. They are. Both are 6'2", 220 plus, run sub 4840s with good burst and agility. Dak Prescott's Spark X score actually slightly lower than Deshaun Watson's. Both had similar college QBRs, similar yards per attempt, similar breakout ages. But if you're going to pick the next Dak Prescott, meaning the next wildly successful rookie quarterback, the next QB1 in fantasy in his first year in the league, it wouldn't be Deshaun Watson. Because number one, Deshaun Watson throws the ball 49 miles per hour. That's five miles per hour at best, slower than Dak Prescott's 54 miles per hour. So Deshaun Watson's arm strength can't compare to Dak Prescott and his situation can't compare to Dak Prescott because Dak Prescott found himself in the ideal situation in Dallas with the best possible supporting cast. It's not just the skill positions. It's not just Des Bryant and Cole Beasley and Ezekiel Elliott. The offensive line, the pass protection. Dallas has one of the best offensive lines in the league by consensus. The Houston Texans do not. The Dallas Cowboys had one of the best run games in the league. The Houston Texans have Lamar Miller. Look at the wide receivers and the tight ends. All those skill position players are less than what was available to Dak Prescott with the Dallas Cowboys. Des Bryant, better than DeAndre Hopkins. I would even argue Terrence Williams is better than Will Fuller. So the situation is very different. There's no way, it's not possible for Deshaun Watson to be what Dak Prescott was last year. If there is a player who could be this year's Dak Prescott, it's Mitchell Trubisky. Why? Because Mitchell Trubisky was also incredibly productive at the college level and efficient based on the college QBR that we have available on playerprofiler.com. Had a better college yards per attempt than either Dak Prescott or Deshaun Watson. And Trubisky's also incredibly athletic. He has a sub 4.7040 and an 80th percentile agility score. He also has a stronger throwing arm than either Dak Prescott or Deshaun Watson. But here's the key. Mitchell Trubisky's supporting cast is better. And you might say, well, Chicago Bears don't have a DeAndre Hopkins level talent. No, but they have Cameron Meredith, who I think is not quite DeAndre Hopkins, but not that far off either. More importantly, the Bears have an elite offensive line. The Chicago Bears and the New Orleans Saints have the least talked about elite offensive lines in the NFL. Both quietly posted top five run-blocking efficiency grades on playerprofiler.com. Don't believe me? Go to the Mark Ingram page. Go to the Jordan Howard page. The Bears signed Deion Sims, the best two-way tight end no one talks about. And you have to imagine either Kendall Wright or Victor Cruz will experience at least a mild rebirth with all those extra targets in Chicago. So my bet is Mitchell Trubisky, not Deshaun Watson, posting a Dak Prescott-esque rookie season. The problem is Mitchell Trubisky's white, so it's not a good comp. 
We all know players have to look similar to be similar, right? Except Julian Edelman and Wes Welker are not actually alike, other than the fact that they're both 5'10 and wore a Patriots jersey. That's where the similarities ended. But that's not how the mindless, dataless drones do their comps. They look at the headshot, and that's enough. Because you know Michael Fabiano didn't go to playerprofiler.com. I know for a fact Michael Fabiano wasn't weighing Dak Prescott and Deshaun Watson's similar burst scores in his analysis. We know that wasn't happening. The moment I saw that tweet, I knew, oh no, no, another headshot comp by Michael Fabiano. No, 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 no. Fabiano! No way. He actually went to playerprofiler.com and found out they also had similar speed, burst, and agility because if he had visited playerprofiler.com, then he would have realized that based on arm strength alone, Deshaun Watson cannot be Dak Prescott. But Deshaun Watson will absolutely ascend to elite status, championship-level quarterback play in the Canadian Football League. We're going to have Chris Raybon on from 4 for 4. We'll ask Chris Raybon, see what he has to say. And when I was talking about Mitchell Trubisky, I did not mention Kevin White as one of his available weapons. What about Kevin White? That's a check mark on Mitchell Trubisky's side of the ledger. Not really. Not really. The strangest beat report was released this week. Somehow, someway, it leaked out of the Chicago Bears locker room that Bears coaches have been attempting to remind Kevin White that he used to be good. (laughs) That he used to be good at football. That his confidence is at such a low point that the coaches have become counselors, massaging Kevin White's self-esteem, trying to resuscitate this man's ego and his confidence in his own abilities because this is one of the things that I always marvel about with professional athletes their incredible confidence the swagger there are at least 50 wide receivers in the NFL that believe they're the best wide receiver in the NFL there's 50 running backs that believe they're the best running back there's got to be at least 10 quarterbacks that think they're the best quarterback in the NFL and that's amazing to me not Kevin White I mean how demoralized must a player be if the coaches recognize low self-esteem on the football field. His shoulders must be hunched, shuffling from drill to drill, sulking in meetings. This is what's happening right now in Chicago Bears training camp. We know this to be the case. So many of these beat reports are just speculation based on nothing. This is not. No way a beat reporter makes this up. You can't make this up. It's so rare that a player would need his coaches to be counselors, to be there to prop up his confidence. It's just, it's stunning. It's stunning and laughable. Just laughable. Because on the one hand, it's the most revealing report we've had from training camp in the NFL this season. And then on the other hand, it's fake news. It's fake news because what the coaches are saying to Kevin White to try to boost his confidence is a falsehood. He was never actually good. So it's all fake news at the end of the day. They're asking Kevin White to rediscover a player he never was. He was never good at football. How do I know that? Because in his junior year at West Virginia, at age 21, he's a 21-year-old junior playing in a relatively weak conference. 
Kevin White posted 35 receptions for 500 yards and five touchdowns. That was it. Then in 2014, he did catch over 100 footballs. He did do that. He did. Double-digit touchdowns. That happened. That happened. And that was impressive. Except I was always concerned about that yards per reception. Because 13.3 is well below the 50th percentile. It's not Zay Jones bad. It's not 10.5. It's not nothing. But it's bad. And it's particularly bad when you look at his athleticism. So when we're looking for warning signals of a possible bust, we look for any area where a player is not translating his athleticism into on-field performance. And if you have a 123.6 burst score and a 123.4 98th percentile height-adjusted speed score, even if you catch a pass close to the line of scrimmage, you should be able to explode past college defenders, particularly the college defenders West Virginia was facing, and post a yards per reception 15.0 or above. That would be the expectation looking at this athletic profile. But in both years at West Virginia, Kevin White averaged 13.6 yards per reception. As it turns out, Kevin White was a compiler. Huge counting stats as part of a wide-open, air-raid-style offense that West Virginia deployed. That's why the dominator rating wasn't as high as you would think. You catch 100 footballs, your dominator rating should be 90th percentile or above, but not Kevin White. 36.8% dominator rating was 72nd percentile. These are the warning signals, and the most predictive metric at all also happen to be the brightest warning flare in the sky on the Kevin White profile on playerprofiler.com. Breakout age, 21.2 breakout age, 31st percentile. We like our wide receivers to be dominant early in their college career. That's the most predictive signal on the profile. And easily Kevin White's most glaring weakness heading into that 2015 draft. So for me, looking at the Kevin White profile in 2015, it was a conundrum. And when I find myself in one of these conundrums, this is when I turn to the tape analysts, the film grinders. I say, this player looks like a college compiler. What can you tell me about what you saw from him on tape at West Virginia? I mean, I do a show, the Sonic Truth Podcast, with Nate Liss, who is a film grinder. And the feedback from that community on Kevin White was, he's overrated because at West Virginia, he ran an immensely limited route tree. He only lined up on one side of the field, and he only ran a handful of routes. The in, the out, the slant, and the slant and go. The end. And I thought to myself, why is West Virginia not deploying Kevin White on the outside? Why are they playing Kevin White in the slot at the college level? You see this happens in the NFL, where a player who is successful on the outside gets moved into the slot out of necessity. We've seen this with Jordan Matthews. But to play inside, on one side of the field, with a hugely limited route tree, I considered that a red flag right there with breakout age. Because he's 21 years old and he still is not a complete receiver. Then he turns 22 for his senior season. Still not a complete receiver. Still not running all the routes. Still not handling all the assignments. When you take a step back, this is what a developmental prospect looks like. The Chicago Bears drafted a developmental prospect in the top 10 picks! It was such an egregious reach. 
That player, the wide receiver, who underperforms his athleticism at the college level is so rarely successful. I mean, I can think of one guy who for consecutive seasons has been productive and efficient on an NFL football field at the wide receiver position despite a low dominator and a late breakout age at the college level. His name's Martavis Bryant. Martavis Bryant is the outlier. 115.1, 115.1, 95th percentile height adjusted speed score on playerprofiler.com. Incredible burst and a 1031, 94th percentile catch radius. But at Clemson, competing for targets with DeAndre Hopkins and Sammy Watkins, only an 18.5% college dominator. But at least Martavis Bryant's yards per reception, 19.7. At least when called upon, what was he doing? Delivering splash plays for the Tigers. Kevin White never did that. So in that way, you could argue that Kevin White was an even more extreme outlier than even Martavis Bryant. Because other than Martavis Bryant, the other wide receivers who underperformed their athleticism at the college level, Corderell Patterson, Justin Hunter, fail, 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 fail. The players that ascend early, they look a lot more like Keenan Allen and Amari Cooper and Allen Robinson at the college level. Great age-adjusted production, great size-adjusted athleticism. That is what we look for. This is also why you should avoid Zay Jones in Dynasty Leagues because Kevin White was Zay Jones before Zay Jones. It's just that Zay Jones has an even lower yards per reception than even Kevin White playing inside for a wide-open offense, rolling up counting stats, all the while underperforming his athleticism when you look at age-adjusted production. But I know Zay Jones is a popular pick in best ball leagues, especially the best ball leagues that you can join on Draft. Go to your app store, Android, iPhone, download Draft. When you type in Draft, it's the first app that appears, Get Draft. Because then you can join a best ball league that's Draft Master. You draft the league and you can choose either fast draft or slow draft and then just watch the season play out without having to manage anything. So it's the easiest way to play full season Draft Master best ball leagues. And then once the season starts, because week one's a month away, Draft delivers Snake Draft DFS. If you're sick of the salary cap format, that the other DFS providers are wedded to, go to draft and you can create a unique lineup using the snake draft format. That's my preferred way to play DFS. I use draft. Now let's go talk to Chris Raybon from four for four. We'll ask him who his favorite best ball value wide receivers are. Follow him at Chris Raybon on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. Chris Raybon from 4 for 4. This is my guy. This, 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 this is my guy. Chris Raybon, talk to me. What's going on, Matt? How's it going, man? You know, I uh, I just missed like two hours of news. Um, a lot of things have been happening, man. So we got, we got a lot to talk about. You and I both just woke up from a slumber and we turn on the Twitter machine and there's an injury to Sterling Shepard. There's another injury to Will Fuller. Oh shit, stuff to talk about on August 2nd. Earlier this year, we met up. We met up in Nashville. Yes. Chris Raybon, it was Matt Kelly, it was J.J. Zacharyson, it was Rich Rebar, it was Pat Doherty bar hopping in Nashville at the FSTA conference, and it was an amazing phenomenon to watch. 
all of the women flock to our group, beautiful women, just could not get enough. We are the best and brightest fantasy minds, and we are rock stars in Nashville. You might think that, you know, being famous and having a line of women want to talk to you sounds like a great thing, but I can tell you that our group, we viewed it as a hindrance because we were trying to talk football, and all of these beautiful women were trying to talk to us, and it got really annoying. Right, Chris? That's how it went down, right? Remember that, right? Remember that? That's that's kind of why we're, we're doing this podcast, isn't it? I mean, we still haven't—we're still kind of, you know, kicking these women out of our room <laughs> as we speak, um, and this is the first time we've got to talk— um, you know, since since then, you know, it was just that many. But it's actually interesting because, you know, what's even better than a whole bunch of women flocking to you is what happened to me in the the the, the fantasy conference the year before, which was actually in Dallas. Um, also with Mr. Zacharyson, uh, we're, we're just sitting in a bar, me, JJ, Jeff Ratcliffe, and uh, you know, minding our own business, talking some football. And uh, and this midget comes out up to me out of nowhere. Like I don't, I don't know the guy. Um, I thought it was Kevin Hart for a second actually, um, but it was it was just a, it was just a midget. And he just asked for a shot of Hennessy, and I, I was kind of floored because you know I didn't know the guy. I didn't know why he just came up to me out of everybody. But I was like, what? And then I and I just kept minding my business, and he kept coming back. So you know, eventually I just you know, bought me him and JJ a shot of. A shot of Jack Daniels, you know, that was the compromise, you know, uh, no Hennessy, but, you know. That's how it goes at these FSTA conferences. Whenever the fantasy football personalities are out in public, we're more likely to have a conversation with a little person than a member of the opposite sex. <laughs> That's how the probabilities shake out. Anyone that wants to do a public-facing job and get notoriety from the opposite sex, I would implore them not to go into fantasy football. There's never been a more male-dominated industry, and it was just hilarious that we were there the entire time. Just guys. Just dudes. I mean, it was dudes. That's what it was. But because we had our group and we were talking football, we didn't even realize that we were just a buzzing hive of dudes the entire time. So I've never been more sarcastic on this show than I was telling that story about the FSTA conference. Have you ever been out in public at the grocery store and someone recognized you as Chris Raybon from 4 for 4? Of course, it would be a dude, but has this ever happened to you? It has not in a grocery store. Um, I was actually doing a Anywhere. career day. A career day, though. And um, somebody did. Some, some, some kid was like, wait, what's your name? He's like, oh, my dad listens to you. Now, he could have been lying. And, you know, I think that was my, my claim to fame because, you know, that, that's how popular I am. That, you know, even, even kids know. A random dude's son who heard you on a podcast recognize you. That's really the extent of our fame right there. I was talking to J.J. Zacharyson, and he had a moment in a Starbucks where someone came up to him and said, you're J.J. Zacharyson. <laughs> that has not happened to me yet, but maybe Whoa. by the end of the year, that will happen to me. I, I hope think... it happens to you again, too. We're just these fame-seeking <sighs> wannabe celebrities. That's all we are in this fantasy game, Chris. I mean... At least we had a better time in Nashville this off season, at, at you know on the little strip little strip of bars than uh than one Tajay Sharp who 
was at the same bar that, that we were at one night. Um, and I guess somebody was making fun of him because he sucked last year. <laughs> and then he assaulted him or something. So, you know, I think I think it's safe to say that we had a we had a little better experience than Tajay Sharp. I'm sure he, he did have more more women, but he also may have caught a charge. So, you know, he caught a charge. Tajay Sharp, the ignominious accomplishment having the least fantasy points with the most snaps <laughs> among all NFL wide receivers in 2016. Now, I have you on the show because you're one of the good guys and one of the smart guys in fantasy football. And when I have one of the handful of truly smart guys out there in fantasy football on the show, I want to talk concepts. Break down a couple concepts, the first one being touchdown regression. We talk about touchdown regression or positive touchdown reversion, however you want to think of it. Lots of touchdowns one year, going down the following year. Not a lot of touchdowns one year, probably going to go up the following year. So when we talk about touchdown regression, what are we talking about? And give me a couple quarterbacks, one that will experience a positive touchdown reversion and another one that will experience a negative touchdown regression. Yeah, so touchdown regression is really, it just comes down to the fact that unlike yardage, unlike usage, which, which is determined by coaches. And then, you know, to, to some extent, you know, they're, they're, they're telling you who's going to come on the field. And then you have yardage, you have, you have receptions, you have things like that. Um, all, all those stats, are, they carry over a lot more from year to year and, and game to game. They're a lot more sticky, whereas touchdowns, they are volatile from, from game to game and year to year because, you know, teams are only scoring two, three, four touchdowns in a game sometimes less, sometimes more. But in, in, in general, there's only a few touchdowns to be scored in a given game. So depending on how those touchdowns are distributed, you could see some uh, a few outliers every season where you just almost know that, that they're not going to repeat from one year to the next. It's just really difficult to sustain uh, an incredibly high touchdown rate. And at the same time, it's really difficult to... If you're getting a decent amount of usage to, to, to have a low touchdown rate for an extended period uh, of time either. So w- when you look at quarterbacks. Yeah, the touchdown distribution across a player's career is fairly random. Look at Ben Roethlisberger. One season, 18 touchdowns. The next season, 32 touchdowns. The other underlying statistics and metrics are stable. The touchdowns oscillate wildly year to year. They're very volatile. And it's just random chance. It's just what plays work on any given Sunday on the two-yard line. Sometimes it's a run. Sometimes it's a pass. It's impossible to predict, and they're not sticky. So who's a guy that you think will score more touchdowns this year than he did last year? I'm looking at Kirk Cousins because what happened with Kirk Cousins last year was that he had Pierre Garçon and Deshaun Jackson, and as solid of veteran presences as both of those guys are they 
have not been very good in the red zone. And especially last season, Garcon and Jackson were responsible for 24 of Washington's 73 red zone targets. And about two thirds of touchdowns are scored in the red zone uh, on passing plays, I should mention. So you know, the red zone is it's an arbitrary kind of cutoff. You know, some you can look inside the 10, you can look inside the 20. You know, there's different ways to look at it. But the red zone is just kind of that little arbitrary cutoff where, you know, there's it, it kind of balances out the, the small sample size with, you know, something that you can, you know, kind of look at from year to year and, and at least get a little sense of what's going on. So, you know, 24 uh, red zone targets for Garcon and Jackson, only two touchdowns on those tw- on those 24 targets. So because of that, Cousins only throws 25 touchdowns on 606 pass attempts last year. The year before, he only threw 546 pass attempts, and he had 29 touchdowns. So Kirk Cousins is easily a guy that could throw over 30 touchdowns this year, even if the Redskins run the football a little more, which I think they actually might. Um, Rob Kelly actually said the first thing uh, Coach Gruden told him when he found out he would be uh, retaking the play-calling duties because Sean McVay the offensive coordinator from 2016, he's went to take the head coaching job of the Rams. Rob Kelly told him that you need to drop some weight. We're going to be running the ball a lot more. But even if uh, they do that, I think Cousins is a guy who will uh, push for 30 touchdowns. Gruden said it himself uh, earlier in camp that he's happy that he has a guy like Terrell Pryor here now. You know, big guy, 6'4". He, he's, he can throw some fades too. You're going to have Dotson maybe. Um, on, on the outside, Crowder is probably a guy who, you know, he did well in the red zone last year. Uh, well, he got a lot of targets in the red zone last year. But, you know, the, the Redskins really had a situation last year where they 24 targets between Gar- uh, Jackson and Garcon and then another 16 red zone targets to Jamison Crowder, only three touchdowns. And he's a pretty he's a pretty diminutive receiver himself. So if they could kind of just redistribute that red zone target allocation a little better this year among prior among uh, Jordan Reed, get him a little more involved, uh, assuming the toe is okay. Uh, Vernon Davis just re-upped on a two-year deal, so maybe you get him more involved in the red zone. Guys with a big catch radii. Right, right. You just kind of, if you just redistribute some of Cousins' tar- red zone targets, I think it'll be easy for him to kind of push that 30-touchdown that ter- mark. So um, that's who I'm looking at as far as somebody that's going to kind of exceed exceed expectation this year. The deep passes are more difficult to complete than the red zone passes because passes in the red zone are necessarily shorter than the average target. Yet, Kirk Cousins' red zone completion percentage was the same as his deep ball completion percentage last year. That is a riddle. To be top five in deep passing and outside the top 30 in the red zone, that illustrates perfectly how Kirk Cousins' touchdowns will come back in the line next year. Now, which quarterback had an unsustainable touchdown? Which quarterback had an unsustainable touchdown rate last year? This is gonna not be a popular uh, take, but and and this is not to say necessarily that I don't like him as a pick, but Derek Carr, not even Derek Carr. That's a good one. Marcus Mariota, and this is going to go against everything because, you know, Marcus Mariota, the thing about it is, okay, he essentially has the highest red zone touchdown rate of 
any active quarterback in the league in his career thus far. So for the first two years of Marcus Mariota's career, he has been more efficient in the red zone than any quarterback. And now he, the Titans just picked up Eric Decker, who is one of the uh, most prolific red zone receivers in the league as well. You know, he's up there in terms of his red zone touchdown conversion percentage. So on paper, it looks like Marcus Mariota is going to break the record for red zone completion percentage, right? Because he was top 10 for the first two seasons that he was in the league. Right. So, you know, on paper, yeah, it's everyone's kind of expecting, okay, you know, his touchdown rate is going to increase even further, but he was, he's just been extremely fortunate these two years, even if he truly is a great red zone quarterback, a great passer in scoring position just from natural regression. Cause that's what regression is. Regression isn't necessarily just sitting here and looking at and say, and, and trying to, you know, prognosticate on exactly what's who, what kind of situations everyone's in and, and exactly how many touchdowns they're going to score and you know, who, whose situation got better and worse. It's just kind of looking and saying, okay, just from natural regression from natural uh, from the natural behaviors of statistics that this could happen regardless of of, of the other factors. So Marcus Mariota is a guy where he could take a third year leap. He could improve even more this year. Decker could help. Everything could be great. And just because of how unsustainable his touchdown rate has been throughout the first two years of his career, mm. he, his touchdown rate could come down. There are no unicorns. They don't exist. So for that reason alone, you can't predict Marcus Mariota to constantly finish in the top 10 in red zone completion percentage. It's just not possible, even with Eric Decker. Running backs. Which running back had an unsustainable touchdown rate last year? And you can't say Tevin Coleman. That's still easy. LeGarrette Blunt. I mean... The guy was on the New England Patriots, for goodness sakes. This is an offense that, for the last five years in a row, they have been in the top four in terms of offensive plays, offensive snaps run inside the opponent's 10-yard line. So LeGarrette Blunt goes out last year and he scores 18 touchdowns, You know, 16 of them come you know, inside the 20 yard line. Now he goes to, to the Philadelphia Eagles and they have a kind of a worrisome uh, history in terms of last year, worrisome recent history with, with the new coaching staff in terms of how they are using their kind of early down power back, the Ryan Matthews from last year. There were games where Matthews would get single digit carries, sometimes as low as five carries. Um, and and, and we, the Eagles, it's just going to be difficult for them to, to, to give Blunt as many opportunities in close because for running backs, you have about – Almost 90% of running back touchdowns are are coming in the red zone. Inside the five-yard line, you have about two-thirds of all running back touchdowns are occurring. So those goal line looks are really important for uh, for a running back to, to score touchdowns. And, you know, in addition to Blunt, you know... I'll just say it. I'll just say it. Blunt's a joke. Blunt is a joke. 51% snap share last year. Only eight targets on the Patriots... Mm-hmm. And 3.9 yards per touch, not yards per carry. Yard, he had a sub 4.0 yards per touch. LeGarrette Blunt is a joke, and joke players get exposed when they leave 
exceptionally efficient offensive systems. So we'll see LeGarrette Blunt get exposed this year. Hit four and a half red zone carries per game last year. Joke. It's also the reason why you should be chasing a guy like Rex Burkhead. Rex Burkhead's available in the final rounds of drafts. That's the perfect flyer because he's the biggest running back on the Patriots. Why pay the price for Mike Gillisley in the fourth round when you can just take Rex Burkhead in the final round and you're getting the guy that looks the most similar to LeGarrette Blunt physically in Rex Burkhead. Now, the positive reversion to the mean, based on that, which running back's going to score more touchdowns this season? Well, first of all, we, we got to talk about this Rex Burkhead thing because I, I, I actually think Rex Burkhead is Brandon Bolden. I, I think that... Oh, he's a much better Brandon Bolden, absolutely. I think they signed him to, to kind of play that special teams role. I, I'm looking at Gillis. I still I don't think Gillis worth the fourth round pick. That's where he's going in expert mocks, man. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it because we don't know what's going to happen. It's one thing if Mike Gillisley was 225 pounds. I'd be all about it, man. I'd be all about that Gillisley life. But he's 208, so we'll see. We'll see. All I'm saying is we'll see. If you're going to throw darts on players... Make sure they operate in these hyper-efficient systems that can give you the most upside. And if it doesn't shake out in week one, you just drop them. That's the reason why you burn your late-round picks on the Burkheads of the world. That's my point. It's not that I think Burkhead's going to be the guy. It's just the upside is 18 touchdowns if things shake out in New England for Rex Burkhead. That's all. That's all I meant. I'm not saying draft Rex Burkhead ahead of Mike Gillisley. Of course not. Positive touchdown regression candidates... I- Spencer Ware is interesting because Spencer Ware, there's kind of all this chatter. Okay, well, uh, you know, Kareem Hunt, the highest Andy Reid running back draft pick since Niall Davis. So now we're kind of worried about, you know, Spencer Ware. <laughs> what an interesting <laughs> distinction that is. <laughs> you know, if you can make a, you can make a Niall Davis comp, I feel like you just got to go for it. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so Spencer Ware on 27 red zone carries last season, only three touchdowns Woof. in those 27 carries, two of nine inside the five. Spencer Ware is a guy that could easily uh, push for, for eight to ten touchdowns because the Kansas City Chiefs, they're always going to be a pretty solid team. They're always going to play pretty solid defense. Their special teams is always going to be solid enough to get them in a good field position. And Alex Smith is always going to be a below average red zone quarterback. His career high in touchdowns period uh, in a season is 23. And the Chiefs offense is... And he has that one season on his resume where he did not throw a touchdown pass to a wide receiver for 16 games. That happened. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Like, that happened. That's on the record. That happened. You can go to the stats. You can pull up any website (laughs) that provides football stats, whether it's Player Profile or any other website, and you'll see zero touchdowns to wide receivers in 2015. That happened. Yeah. So so draft Spencer Ware. That's what. Yeah, it's it's, it's a lot of upside there. It's it's kind of going overlooked. It's he's just kind of this unsexy middle round pick, but Oh, I hate drafting him, but I do it anyway. He, he can catch, he can he can run and he, there's that upside again. Like you said, Alex Smith could throw Precious few touchdowns this year. Travis Kelsey, Travis Kelsey last year had uh, 11, over 1,100 uh, receiving yards, and he had four touchdowns. He, 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 he scored a touchdown every 280 yards, you know? So 
People don't talk about the 2018 Travis Kelsey season with Patrick Mahomes that we could see if Patrick Mahomes can play. Mm -hmm. What Travis Kelsey can do in 2018 is going to be spectacular. Now, give me the wide receiver that's going to score more touchdowns this year, according to Chris Raybon. Well, see, the obvious choice here, the obvious, obvious choice would be Amari Cooper. But it's it's almost hilarious. It's comical almost how bad um, he's been in the first two years at scoring touchdowns in his first year, in his rookie season. He played every game, and yet he had only seven red zone targets. It, he played the whole season. He was a, <laughs> a legitimate top, you know, I will say that he was the second option technically because Michael Crabtree, you know, was there. He was getting a, a few more targets. But Amari Cooper had 130 targets in his rookie season, <laughs> over 1,000 yards, uh, over 70 catches. And yet he got seven red zone targets the whole season. So, okay, you know, two touchdowns on those seven red zone targets. Okay, you're kind of looking at it like this is a statistical anomaly. Maybe it was just something, you know, rookie year, slow to get acclimated. Seth Roberts, obviously just a much stronger red zone. president. <laughs> yes, 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 of course. You, you, you got to get Seth Roberts' targets and then whatever's left for Cooper, you know, you go from there. So year two, okay, we're getting into year two and the – the, the Raiders are, are looking at it like, okay, this is our this is our guy, Amari Cooper. We got to get him more involved. You know, it's, it's year two. Let's let's do this. Yeah. And they get yeah. they get Amari Cooper, um, thirteen red zone targets this year. Now, first of all, for some context, Michael Crabtree got twenty one red zone targets. Yeah, the red zone target share barely moved. Right from two thousand fifteen to two thousand sixteen, went from thirteen point seven to fourteen point one because they happened to throw the ball a lot more in the red zone in two thousand sixteen. He's not using the red zone. Period. I don't know why. Yeah, and, and okay, Cooper got thirteen red zone targets. Crabtree twenty one. Seth Roberts another twenty. <laughs> right? <laughs> How is this possible? But it's you know why it's possible. It it, it, it almost makes you wonder though because. Guess how many touchdowns Amari Cooper scored on those 13 red zone targets? Zero. Exactly. So he is now two for 20 in his career in the red zone. Now, this could still be an anomaly. This could be a long tail. It is. It's an anomaly. You know, there's probably some there's probably some truth to the fact that maybe he's not as good in the red zone as your average you know, high, highly drafted number one wide receiver. I'm sure there is just because of the Raiders' actions in, in terms of the target distribution, in terms of Derek Carr's, you know, because Derek Carr, at the end of the day, he's the guy that is reading the field and looking at his receivers and looking at Amari Cooper and saying, nah, I'd rather go to Seth Roberts. So I'm sure there's something, there's got to be something to that with, with Cooper and, and just his ability to get open in the red zone and, and, and kind of catch the ball in the end zone and score touchdowns. However, even if you are quote unquote bad at scoring in the red zone, two for 20 is still 10% is still something that you have to expect some regression for some, for some context. Like remember Mike Evans. Course correction coming. Right. Remember Mike Evans the year before in 2015, he, he, he had only three touchdowns. Mike Evans, you know, as big as he is, as many red zone targets as he gets, 
as many deep targets as he gets for that matter, you know, just kind of throwing the ball up to him, you know, three touchdowns all, all year. Last year it came back. So, you know, Amari Cooper, he's probably had more touchdowns called back. I don't know if that's an official stat, but I, just watching <laughs> games, he's touchdowns called back than almost any wide receiver that I can remember in these last two seasons, not just in the red zone, but just on deep, deep pass plays period where he'll either go out at the one or, you know, he'll get a, he'll get a a penalty on a touchdown. So uh, Cooper's a guy that you could definitely see some touchdown regression, even if his red zone production remains somewhat lackluster. My positive touchdown regression candidate, DeAndre Hopkins, because 151 targets last year, seventh in the league, only three red zone reception. Rewind. What? One hundred and fifty one targets, three red zone receptions. So he was seventh in targets, 89th in red zone receptions. It's just not possible. That can't be repeated. He is one of those wide receivers who wins with great strength at the catch point. That's how he wins. We know that's how he wins. He is their most reliable wide receiver in the red zone by far. Him or CJ Fedorowicz, he's going to experience a positive touchdown reversion this year. Now, especially with Will Fuller out. Will Fuller broken collarbone out two to three months. This is my opportunity to talk briefly about a player named Wendell Williams. Do yourself a favor. Go to playerprofiler.com. P-L-A-Y-E-R-P-R-O-P-I-L-E-R.com and type in Wendell Williams. W-E-N-D-A-L-L Williams. And you will see a player with exceptional athleticism. One of the most athletic wide receivers in the league. This guy has Julio Jones level athleticism. That's not hyperbole. That's just fact. He was one of the most dominant college receivers at the College of Cumberlands, which didn't really even have a stadium. I get it. I get it. But he's a former basketball player who washed out and decided to play football because he's just that damn athletic. That's why he's very old. So the 24.0 breakout age is first percentile on playerprofiler.com. It doesn't get any older than Wendell Williams. Wendell Williams broke out after Kevin White, after Kelvin Benjamin. That's how old he is. But very few wide receivers can come anywhere near Wendell Williams in terms of athleticism. And when you're talking about that stretch X or stretch Z position that Will Fuller would play in that offense, the one-for-one replacement, I would argue 1.5-to-1 replacement because I think Wendell Williams in a vacuum is better than Will Fuller. It's got to be Williams because it's not Braxton Miller. He's an inside player. It's not Jalen Strong. He can't play. (laughs) It's all about Wendell Williams in Houston. Are you familiar with this Wendell Williams guy, Chris? Yeah, I it's crazy because I don't I'm glad you brought up that that breakout age because I don't think has there ever been a player with a, a more drastic split between his you know, college yards perception, his college dominator, which was in the 93rd percentile, his college YPR, which was in the 100s, his spark score is even in the 94th. You know, all of his measurables are pretty much uh, top. Completely sick and amazing and awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm buying it. I don't, I don't really think that uh, Bill O'Brien wants to rely on Fedorowicz nor uh, Ryan Griffin at the tight end position that much. If, if you go back before 2016, uh, O'Brien's offense in Houston didn't really feature the tight end at all. But last year, 
there was this kind of unique situation where you had DeAndre Hopkins and literally every other uh, player was either, was a rookie and then or a second year guy. You know, you had Strong, you had Willful rookie, you had Miller was a rookie, you had Wendell Williams rookie. So I think just kind of out of necessity, uh, O'Brien just kind of had to say, all right, you know what, we're just gonna have to. And Brock Osweiler was just kind of shell shocked into throwing the ball anywhere outside the hash marks as we when you have Brock Osweiler at quarterback it's strange phenomenon will ensue (laughs) that's how outlier seasons can happen when you have a player like Brock Osweiler at quarterback now we see Wendell Williams and he could be this year's Tyreek Hill I like it it. all right so which wide receiver just cannot match his TD rate from 2016 as we spin it forward into 2017 well and he just got hurt and he's gonna miss some time so it might it might not be as quite as relevant but sterling Shepard was six of 12 in red zone uh turning red zone targets into touchdowns last season Mm. and that was just because the giants they really did not have any receivers outside of Odell Beckham that they could throw to in the red zone last year. I, I believe 82% of their red zone targets went to players uh, 6-1 or below, below right? Mm-hmm. So it, mm-hmm. it, they they did a good job. Don't get me wrong. Uh, McAdoo did a really good job. It's no wonder they went and targeted Brandon Marshall in free agency. Yeah. They thought to themselves, we need a big receiver, please, God. Please send right. us a big receiver, please, please. Yeah, it was... It, it was kind of absurd. They they schemed they schemed during Shepard these touchdowns. It wasn't like he was just athletically dominating uh, for these for these for this fifty percent red zone touchdown conversion rate. It was they just kind of you know Beckham's on the outside. He draws a double team. You have Shepard in the slot one on one. You run a, a rub route and you scheme him a touchdown. That's not likely to repeat this year. Yeah, he had a seventy four percent snap share in the slot. That was number one in the NFL. No one played slot more. Than Sterling Shepard last season. Who else you got? Rashard Matthews. I mean, another guy, and it's just, it, it relates to Mariota. Matthews was seven touchdowns in 15 red zone targets. And for context, the, the rate for a wide receiver, the league average rate for a wide receiver is about one in every four. So about 25%, maybe a tiny bit below. Uh, Matthews was seven of 15. So he's getting, he's getting almost, ha- he, he did almost half of his touchdowns, um, you know, t- red zone targets into touchdowns last year. And that's right. just going to be difficult to repeat. And the targets themselves might go down. There's a lot more mouths to feed. Matthews was operating essentially as the team's top target for a large portion of the season, at least the second half of the season. Now you got Corey Davis, you got Taewon Taylor, and of course you have Eric Decker. So Rashard Matthews is a guy that his touchdown rate is is really going to be difficult to to repeat. Who's going to get the touchdowns in New York? Let's assume for a minute that Sterling Shepard misses the first couple weeks with his high ankle sprain because he could be out six weeks. Who does this help the most? Brandon Marshall, because he'll be the one absorbing so many of the red zone opportunities. I think Marshall, I I think Marshall is obviously the number one candidate because I think that's why they got him at this stage of his career. There were some worrisome signs. First of all, last year with the Jets, as much as you could blame quarterback play, you can't just completely write off um, when a when a player gets outproduced by 
Quincy Inunua, um, you know, in terms of efficiency, Easy. you know, gets gets out targeted by Robbie Anderson. Oh, that's bad. That's embarrassing. Right, right. So it's and and, and you know, targets and, and are, are are still somewhat of a measure of skill. And and I know Marshall was just dealing with a, a ton of double teams and the quarterback play wasn't there. But you know, you remember players like Andre Johnson and Marcus Colston. These these bigger guys have they kind of they kind of fall off cliffs at, at a certain point in their career. Marshall's getting up there in age. He's 33, so we don't know exactly how much of it was due to quarterback play necessarily, and how much of it was just due to to declining. But I think the Giants generally make pretty decent um, moves in in terms of free agency and things like that. So I, I think that they signed him not to be a high-volume guy and catch 90 balls. I think they signed him to maybe catch, you know, 60 balls, maybe four a game or so, and but be a, a, a presence in the red zone. So I think Marshall could still push for, for 10 touchdowns, even if he's not necessarily the Brandon Marshall of old catching 90 to 100 passes. But I mean... I think... Oh, that's interesting. So he wouldn't be a WR1 in fantasy, but he would no. be potentially leading the league in red zone target share. Right, exactly. He could... And, and you got to remember, uh, another thing, though, about Marshall is that Odell Beckham has been essentially the only guy for the Giants these, these last few years. And his first three seasons of his career have been better than any other wide receiver we've ever seen. Ever. He scored 12 ever. touchdowns this rookie year, 13 ever. in 2015, right? And, and yeah, t- uh, 10 touchdowns last year was his lowest touchdown output of a three-year career. So there's going to be a season when Odell Beckham, given how good he's been in his first three years, there's going to be a season one of these years where Odell Beckham just has that historic season. I'm talking not historic for a first three years. I'm just talking historic in general. Like if he can do this much in his first three years, there's going to be one of those seasons where everything goes right and there's just... 2,000-yard season. Right. 2,000-yard season. 20 touchdowns and... Who knows? Maybe with Marshall there, you can't double Beckham quite as much in the red zone. And uh, and Beckham, you know, gets 15, 20 touchdowns this year. So I think it might actually help Odell Beckham uh, even more than, than Brandon Marshall. A guy to look out for on this New York Giants depth chart is absolutely Roger Lewis. Roger Lewis was signed up to play for Ohio State and was kicked out. Had to sit out a year, went to Bowling Green. Now, at Bowling Green, he only played two years, freshman and sophomore season. In his sophomore season at Bowling Green, 85 receptions, 1,544 yards, 18.2 yards per reception, and 16 touchdowns at Bowling Green. This was a prolific offense. This is one of those air raid style spread offenses. I get it. A lot of volume there. But anytime you're going to eclipse 1,500 yards and 15 touchdowns at the college level and you were a premium recruit once upon a time, I'm interested because his profile looks strikingly similar to Robert Woods. And Robert Woods on any team that needs a slot receiver would be productive. Robert Woods is out of his depth as the featured option. He's going to be out of his depth on the Rams. He'll get targets, but he won't be efficient. 
Put a guy like Robert Woods in the slot, that's where they can thrive. So I think that Roger Lewis in the slot can be just as productive as Sterling Shepard was given his profile. And Shepard wasn't, and that's the thing about Shepard last year, as as good of a rookie year he had in terms of volume and he got the eight touchdowns, uh, we talked about it. He was one of the more inefficient rookie receivers to get that many targets over the past decade or so in terms of his his yards per target and, and things of that nature um you know kind of very used very conservatively you know not 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 very far down the field no it is an indictment that's absolutely right to command 105 targets but only post a 6.5 yards per target exactly that's rare that's rarefied air of inefficiency masked by great touchdown volume that's why a guy like Roger Lewis can step in and fill those shoes. It's not like he's replacing an exceptional talent. Now, we've talked about touchdown regression. I want to talk about game script regression, and in some cases, a positive reversion in game script. What do we talk about when we talk about game script? Throw that term around all the time. What does it mean? Game script is essentially how how many plays a team is spending uh in in positive situations on the scoreboard where you're either you're leading and therefore that kind of dictates running the football more versus the amount of time you spend trailing in a game which dictates throwing the football more uh league wide when teams are leading they're running the ball about a third more uh, on average than mm. when trailing and of course you know that the degree is larger as you, you get a bigger lead or a bigger deficit so there are certain teams that you know maybe they spent they overachieved last year or they underachieved and therefore they just spent a a, a large amount of their plays in, in game script that we may not expect um, you know in the following season and therefore that can kind of shift around the allocation of of usage for these players you know if a team spent a lot of time winning they might have not thrown a lot of uh, as many passes as you would expect them to. Uh, or if they spent a lot of time behind, they they're not they're not they're not running the ball as much. So there's going to be players that that are just going to get a, a natural kind of regression to the mean in terms of their their overall usage. So this matters the most for running backs. NFL teams are going to throw no matter what. But if they're losing by a significant amount in the second half, they will abandon the run altogether. So when you look at the running backs, which running back will likely experience a positive game script regression? <sighs> I mean, the, in terms of, first of all, just to just to uh, add to that, the the reason we look at the Vegas lines when we're playing DFS, or you can even do it for making start sit decisions in the season, is because you know favorites, Vegas favorites, teams that are favored, um, running backs on those teams, or in general, those teams score about uh, 0.98. Uh, so essentially one rushing touchdown per game, whereas underdogs, they only average about, you know, 0.75 uh, rushing touchdowns per game. And then there's there's splits, um, you know, where you look at running backs as favorites uh, versus as underdogs. And you'll see that the same running backs that, you know, when their team is a favorite, they're scoring touchdowns at a certain rate. When they're when they're an underdog, that rate drops. So you know that that's just to to, to provide some context for uh you know for 
for, for how for how you kind of look at this in terms of how you can go about actually using it as actionable information. Now, running backs that will experience a positive touchdown regression, you know, this is uh, maybe an unpopular choice, although his ADP has climbed a lot, so maybe not, but Isaiah mm-hmm. Crowell. Isaiah Crowell, I mean, the Cleveland Browns were pretty much as bad as you can be last year. They were 1-15. They spent 664 plays last season trailing in games. That is the most in the National Football League. So in Cleveland, it's interesting because, you know, they actually underperformed a little. I think their Pythagorean win expectation was actually at maybe three and a half games. So there could be some natural regression there where even if Cleveland is still a bottom 10 team, um, which they'll probably be. Careful, careful. (laughs) We like Cleveland. This is the official state radio program of the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland weather next. (laughs) That was a compliment. Oh, dude, they're going to be good. I can't wait for them to be good and <laughs> shock mainstream sports media. Yeah, man. So, you know, I think that's a team right there that that, that could definitely uh, give their running back a few more opportunities, especially because you, Jackson, even said it. He said he, he quotes. He said he, quote, beat himself up over. Uh, abandoning the run they have one of the best offensive lines in the league now by the way they signed they signed two offensive linemen in in, in kevin zeitler and, and jc treader in free agency they have the most expensive offensive line in the league it should be pretty good well one of those guards was the reason why the chicago bears were so effective running the ball with jordan howard last year the bears lost their best guard the Cleveland Browns. Could Isaiah Crowell be this year's Jordan Howard? It's possible. What we're telling you is it's possible that the forces are lining up to propel Isaiah Crowell this year. Unfortunately, the Sharps that play early season fantasy football, the way too early leagues, the MFL 10s, Isaiah Crowell ends up going in the third and fourth round. So a lot of that value has been vaporized as the appreciation of positive game script reversion proliferates around fantasy football. But who's on the other side of that spectrum? Who's the guy who's on a team winning a lot of games and it just can't be repeated? Well, and I think this could be mitigated if he catches more passes anyway, but uh, the Dallas Cowboys were third in the NFL. There it is. I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say Ezekiel Elliott. I knew it. Yeah, so... And this is not a knock on Elliott or anything, but it's just, again, it's just, we, we just say it. It's natural regression where the Cowboys yeah. just overperformed expectation. They were, you know, 311 plays uh, while, while trailing was the third fewest in the league. So, and, and you still have Dez Bryant there, and we know. Uh, what kind of uh, presence he commands in scoring position. It's year two of Dak Prescott. So they may open the offense up a little more in close. And, you know, Ezekiel, it's a guy that, you know, they're going to have to Chris, they're going to have to throw the ball more because there's no way they're going to be playing with these double digit leads in the second half every week. Last year, talking to Warren Sharp from Sharp Football, Dallas Cowboys had the easiest schedule in the NFL this season by some accounts. They now have the hardest schedule in the NFL. No team has experienced a more drastic schedule flip from 2016, turning the calendar to 2017, than the Dallas Cowboys. There is some risk in Ezekiel Elliott. His floor is not as high as many fantasy analysts perceive. Yeah, it's... um. But his ceiling is. 
Of course, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, he's great, because he's going to catch more passes, that's the, the upside, right? Yeah, you had you had uh, Le'Veon Bell and David Johnson, right, in their first years in the league, they each caught about 35, 36 passes or so. In their second years in the league, both caught over 80, so Woo! just think about that. Yeah, no, he is a good receiver. It's going to happen for him. It hasn't happened for Carlos Hyde in San Francisco. This is a team that should be more competitive this year, should benefit Carlos Hyde, maybe more than any other running back in the league. The positive game script reversion, are you buying Carlos Hyde based on that or no? I'm not. And the reason for that is we there's just too much uncertainty and it's not reflected in his ADP. He's being drafted, you know, fourth, fifth round as if nothing changed from last year. And we know that's not true. Now there's been so much off season chatter. The, the GM came out, John Lynch came out and said, we don't know if Carlos Hyde is a fit for Kyle Shanahan's new zone blocking scheme uh, throughout the off season. Uh, um, beat writers have kind of expressed uh, concern with with the fit for Hyde. Um, just watching him on on the field, um, you know, it's it's more of a read and react kind of running scheme rather than you know just hit you know just hit a hole and and go downhill. So it, that's that's all fine and, and good. And I don't necessarily think that you know Joe Williams is just going to unseat Carlos Hyde, even though. Kyle Shanahan did override his team's draft board. Joe Williams was not on the team's draft board. Uh, he essentially banged his banged the table f- to draft Joe Williams. What really looks like it could happen, uh, the most realistic situation. Banging the table right now. Just banging the table. You can hear him. You can see him banging it. Just banging away. That poor table. Oh, that poor table at the 49ers facility just was just banged into dust by the swinging arm of one Kyle Shanahan. It's probably going to be a committee. And that's that's still, I think, where Carlos Hyde is going. If he's going to be in a committee, which I think he will be, because look, it's not that Joe Williams or anyone else on that roster, for that matter, is necessarily... Tim Hightower, Matt Breda. Yeah, it's, it's not that they're going to necessarily unseat Hyde. It's that Williams, for example, profiles as a compliment to Carlos Hyde. Now, if you look at Kyle Shanahan's history, when he came to Atlanta his first year, 2015, in Atlanta, he had uh, holdover in Devontae Freeman, who was drafted by the previous regime the year before. And then he had another guy who he drafted in the middle rounds, similar to Joe Williams, in Tevin Coleman. Now, in week one of 2015, Tevin Coleman was their starting running back. Kyle Shanahan's guy, Tevin Coleman, got 20 carries, 20 touches. Devontae Freeman got 13. So the only reason that, that Freeman ended up taking over was Coleman got hurt the next week. You know, we all know what happened next. Freeman went ballistic, and they, you just couldn't really justify um, getting Coleman back in. But even after Freeman came off that amazing season in 2015, um, his his touch share dropped. You know, he was at 17 a game last year, and Coleman was up to about 11 and a half after Freeman, you know, got over 20 the year before. So, and even in Cleveland, in Shanahan's first year in Cleveland, which, by the way, that Cleveland offense in 2014 under Kyle Shanahan looks exactly like it does right down to Brian Hoyer. Right, you know, it's it's actually uncanny because you have Brian Hoyer at quarterback. He was the quarterback for the Browns in 2014. They had Taylor Gabriel and Travis Benjamin combining for about 110 <laughs> targets. This this 49ers team has Marcus Goodwin and Aldrick Robinson. What? A veteran slot receiver. The Browns had Andrew Hawkins, about 112 targets. You got Jeremy Curley. 
uh, in San Francisco. It's Kyle Shanahan deja vu. You had, you had, you had, but the, but the craziest thing about it and the thing that it, it kind of gives you pause about, about Carlos Hyde in, in that is that, so there were three running backs on that roster that Shanahan had in Cleveland in 2014. There was the veteran, uh, Ben Tate, and then you had you had a couple of rookies. You had Isaiah Crowell there, and you had Terrence West there. And the way the carries uh, the, and the touches were broken down was that Tate played in eight games. He averaged 14.4 touches. And then you had West and Crowell played most of the season. West had 13.0 touches per game, and Isaiah Crowell had 9.9. So no one really emerged as 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 a as a leader in the backfield uh, for for the entire season over a long stretch, and I think that something similar to that could happen. I don't think Carlos Hyde is going to lose his job, but he can't catch. He averages about four point four yards per target in his career, so he doesn't have that upside of. Okay, if the 49ers are bad, because that offense in Cleveland, uh, Brian Hoyer threw 12 touchdowns. They were one of the worst. They, they only, the only uh, player that, that really was worth anything in fantasy was Josh Gordon. He played only five games. He got 9.4 targets. So, you know, Garcon, okay, he'll probably get a lot of targets. Fine. But this offense could be a wasteland. As good of an offensive mind as Kyle Shanahan is, this offense could be a fantasy wasteland. The touchdown expectation is still not that high, even if there is some game script version and if the and if they are indeed uh you know not that good because they're even like we we could sit here and expect touch um game script regression but the bottom line is the 49ers vegas win total is four and a half wins that's the lowest in the league so you know tied for the lowest in the league so if high is not catching the ball he doesn't have that that built-in floor out of any pick going in the top 50 or so I don't think anyone has a lower floor. You know, the upside, sure, it's still there. You know, anything could happen. He could still get his 17 to 20 touches a game, sure. But we have to take into account the uncertainty, the risk as well. And the floor could also drop out of Carlos Hyde. He could be he could be like a Ryan Matthews. Who would be surprised if Carlos Hyde didn't produce in fantasy football this year? No one would be surprised. Even Carlos Hyde owners wouldn't be surprised if he did nothing this year. We understand that his floor is very low because he's not a multidimensional back. And when you look at the yards per touch versus the yards per carry, it reveals that 4.7 yards per touch, 4.6 yards per carry. That means when he's getting targeted and he wasn't getting targeted much, they're empty targets. This is the problem with LeGarrette Blunt that we talked about. One-dimensional player, go ahead and throw him the ball in the passing game. He's not going to do anything with it. So what is he? He's a one-dimensional, between-the-tackles pounder, still on a bad team until further notice. That's not a guy you want to be spending premium draft capital to acquire. Now, wide receiver position. Is there a wide receiver that's going to enjoy a positive game script waterfall this season? Hmm. I mean, interestingly enough, you could look at a, a, a guy like... As if he, as if he even needed it, you could look at a guy like Julio Jones because mm. the Falcons' yes. second fewest plays, a supercharging of Julio Jones' potential fantasy output. Yes, Chris. Yes, talk to me about this. 
because, you know, we're, we're all sitting here and we're, we're talking about the Falcons are going to regress. And sure, they are. Yeah, we spend all our time talking about Tevin Coleman and Devontae Freeman experiencing a negative regression. We don't talk about Julio Jones. Exactly. If if the running backs are experiencing a negative regression, well, then who's going to pick it up? I mean, Julio Jones had a hundred. Like, you got to think about this, really. I'm thinking, man. You're blowing my mind, man. Julio Jones was second, second in the NFL in receiving yardage. 1409, 1,409 yards receiving. Second, second in the NFL. He was 18th in targets. He had 129 targets. That's it. The Falcons were uh, in the bottom of the league in plays run, in offensive plays run, because they were just winning so much. Yeah, they were winning on a per-play basis more than any other offense. Yes. So you take look at some other alpha dog number one receivers. Look at receivers that are similarly talented to Julio Jones, because Julio Jones arguably is the most talented wide receiver in the league. He's got to be in the top three, I think. So look at guys, you know, Mike Evans last year, 173 targets. Odell Beckham, 169. Antonio Brown, 154. Jordy Nelson, 152. T.Y. Hilton, 155. You have uh, Julian Edelman got 159. That's not as comparable because he's more of a uh, a slot guy, but... He'll never see that again. Edelman's a guy I'm not I'm not really um, touching this year. I think he's going probably, you know, two, three, four rounds, even too, way too high. But he's headed south with my grandparents. Right. But going back to Julio, you he's proven to be one of the most efficient receivers um, in the league, one of the best receivers in the league. Plus 24.5 production premium last year. Looking at it, given down in distance, what is Julio Jones giving you? On a per-play basis, plus 24.5, top seven in the league. Most of the other receivers in the top ten are not full-time players, so they can benefit from more randomness. He's getting a full snap share and giving you 10.9 yards per target and a 90% contested catch percentage rate. I love the contested catch rate for Julio Jones. He is the alpha dog in the NFL. And if you're drafting a guy like Mike Evans before you're drafting Julio Jones, you're doing it wrong. Completely agree, man. Like Julio, just like like I said about Beckham, man. One of these years, these guys. If you look at the careers of players who start out so hot, who pr- produce at a high rate, essentially from the time they were a rookie, and, and they sustain that over a few years, at some point they're probably going to have a historic season. So you know, I don't think anyone's kind of debating, you know, Julio Jones, you know, taking Julio Jones up high. But j- just to just to put it in context, man, that's how you go from eighteen and a half fantasy points per game to twenty one and a half fantasy points per exactly. game. For example, and on the other side of the spectrum is Mike Evans. Mike Evans is on a team that's improving. They're improving the defense. They're improving the offensive line. More weapons for Jameis Winston and O.J. Howard and Chris Godwin. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to be more competitive this year. So for a bunch of reasons, more competition for targets and a more competitive team, more balance, there are numerous external forces working against Mike Evans, where you could argue similar external forces working in favor of a guy like Julio Jones. Now, give me a player that you were dismissive of a couple years ago, but today you appreciate him. The Doug Baldwin corollary. We talked about this all fair, but I think one guy is Bilal Powell. I, it's not, you know, he just kind of, I thought he was just a guy when, 
when he first came into the league. We all did. We all, not one person. Not one person. You, raising your hands. Put your hand down. Put your hand down. You, put your hand down. You did not think Bilal Powell was great three years ago. Nobody did. Nobody did. Go on. The fact that he was able to produce the way he did down the stretch for the New York Jets, given how much of a dumpster fire that team was, I mean, he can run. At this point, he's probably a better receiver just because than Mike Forte, just because of their age difference. And he's a better, he's probably a better runner too. And, you know, down the stretch, last season, last four weeks, uh, almost no other running back really outscored Bilal Powell. I think maybe David Johnson um, in fantasy, but you know, Bilal Powell is a guy that four for four is uh, Joe Hoka kind of charted Powell versus Matt Forte last year. Of course, you know, they're, they're on the same team. They're running behind the same O-line and Powell just performed a lot better versus expectation than Forte um, did. So you could see Bilal Powell kind of really take hold of this this running back role and kind of Matt Forte, you know, sure he'll he'll be around. And I think the only reason that they didn't cut him with the rest of these these veterans that they released in, in their tank job is that they guaranteed Matt Forte's salary this year. But I think you're going to see Bilal Powell uh, maybe even you know maybe outside 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 chance outside chance, but maybe even lead the the, the Jets in in targets. Because why why throw to any of those other? Easy, easy. No, but you're right. Bilal Powell is the guy you want to have on your team during the fantasy playoffs. Bilal Powell is the quintessential zero RB league winner the last couple of years right there with Tim Hightower. Oh, man. Now, in talking about zero RB, a lot of people talk about the RB renaissance, the rebirth of the running back position that we're currently experiencing. I don't think that's in question based on what we saw last year from the running back position. But when you zoom out and you look at overall trends, is zero RB a thing of the past or could it roar back this year and be an even more powerful draft concept than we've ever seen, given how many running backs are starting to get drafted in the early rounds again? Zero RB, it it reminds me of playing daily fantasy and that recency bias and how when when you're playing in a tournament and and a guy comes out of nowhere and he 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 ends up in the winning lineup at like five percent ownership the next week he usually jumps to like 20 percent ownership and does nothing and then everyone's kind of screwed so it kind of reminds me of that with this whole zero rb strategy because i think last season it, it it was as popular as it's ever been and it completely backfired because it was almost like now last year the contrarian play was just to draft running backs and you got your Ezekiel Elliott's and you got your David Johnsons and, and you got your Le'Veon Bell's and you won your league. However, Sean McCoy, right? All yeah, all those guys. There was a lot, you know, as, as long as long as you didn't maybe get like a Jamal Charles or even a even I mean even as bad as Todd Gurley was, he was still you know an RB two at the end of the day because he, he stayed stayed on the field. But this year. It's the perfect time to go back to zero running back. You always want to zig when other people are zagging. Um, if you want uh, uncommon results, you have to you have to use uncommon methods. And and looking at average draft position, people are overdrafting running backs. Last season was the highest uh, touchdown rate uh, for for running backs that we've seen in in years. Um, it wasn't that running backs were, were necessarily being used more or anything like that. The league was passing more than ever. It's just that running backs, and we talked about this before, touchdown regression, touchdowns are volatile. Running backs just happen to score an outlying amount of 
touchdowns, even if you go back, you know, 10, 20 years uh, and look at the touchdown rates for, for these running backs, looked at the, the amount of... LeGarrette Blunt had 18 touchdowns, Chris. It, it was kind of absurd last year. And, and, and on top of that, on top of that, another overlooked... David Johnson scored 20 touchdowns. Oh, yeah, and Johnson, and, and I actually tweeted about this uh, a few weeks ago, but Johnson, I think, is one of, uh, there may be, a, only a handful of players in the NFL history that have scored as many touchdowns as Johnson has over his first two years, over the first two years in the league at the running back position, that he scored, or 30, more, 30 or more touchdowns, and, you know, in their third years, those running backs averaged collectively uh, 8.3 or something like that, touchdowns per season, so that, Johnson what? is another guy, as good as he is, really? as good as he, yeah, as good as he is. That's a stunning stat. Yeah, it, like, it, it gets like cut in half, right? So as good as Johnson is, because we've seen this, right? Look at Le'Veon Bell, for example. Look at Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell, to me, anyways, pro- is the best running back of our generation now. Because, you know, if you take Adrian Peterson and say he's in the last generation and him and Jamal Charles and, you know, Bell and these guys are the new generation, Le'Veon Bell, to me, is the best running back of, of this generation. He His touchdown totals, he touches the ball, you know, 25, 28 times a, a season sometimes, you know, over 20 times a season, uh, times a game per season, and yet his, you know, seven touchdown, rushing touchdowns, eight rushing touchdowns. He doesn't score that many touchdowns. So it's perfectly possible for a guy like David Johnson to experience some type of regression, even with the volume that he's getting. So that, that's something to keep in mind. Um, you know, but, but, but going back to the running backs in the zero RB, it, running backs just didn't get hurt a lot last year either. No, it was an outlier season for running back health running back touchdown usage lots of cohort wide metrics were really running back friendly last year and that will regress it has to and if you go zero rb my recommendation is to look for the next Bilal powell look for the satellite back who's actually a satellite back plus that running back that's used on passing downs now but could be a bell cow if given an opportunity who is that guy for you in the nfl there's a couple of them. So an interesting one is always going to be CJ Procise because mm. we mm. we know we know that he can he can ball. He's a baller. That's what he is. He's a baller. He's a baller. He's gonna be starting out on passing downs because you have you have Rawls and you have Lacey, but if one of those guys goes down even, you know, Procise gets a few more carries you know, to add on to his passing down role. I mean, we saw him in a, in a, in a starters role last season and we saw him put up a few big games. So again, it's kind of like what you said with Burkhead, where you just have to, if you want to get some cheap draft capital of a guy that does have that feature back upside, you know, look at CJ process, another underrated one. And I don't know how you feel about this because, mm. you know, he's an older guy. So I'm, I'm interested to get your take on this, but Devonte Booker, you know, little banged up, had a really bad season last year cj anderson is going to be the starter in denver they have a pretty solid defense so the game script should never really be they have a good defense their game script should never get completely out of hand you know they have a quarter a passing game where it's it's a bit limited they have good receivers we don't know what's going to happen at quarterback so you have a situation where cj anderson struggled to stay healthy he's struggled sometimes while on the field he's been very up and down over his career up and down yeah. He was exceptional for a second half against no top 10 defenses for eight <laughs> straight games, and then he was completely average after that. Right. So here's here's an interesting one. Jamal Charles. Yes, well, this is the year of the aging running back, and I was going to ask you which of these older running backs you like 
as values related to their ADPs. So it's Jamal Charles then. I, I think it is because just look at it. I think we are kind of grouping. We're kind of grouping Jamal Charles in with these other quote unquote older backs. Jamal Charles, first of all, is a little younger than than, than all these other guys that we kind of are, are talking about as 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 these older backs. You know, Jamal Charles, you know, thirty years old. Okay, that that's that's old for a running back, no doubt, no doubt. But you know, Darren Sproles is thirty four. Frank Gore is thirty four. Peterson is. 32 and Peterson just he's a his body type is is it's it's might not stand up to, to time as much as Jamal Charles he has a low body mass index we all know that Jamal Charles is lanky with a low BMI well guess who else has a 10th percentile BMI Adrian Peterson yeah so so Jamal Charles you know his he's not going to turn 31 until December 27th of this season so he's essentially essentially his age it's still his age 30 season kind of technically now that's not necessarily the age where where if, if a running back can kind of stay in the league up to that point it's you're not necessarily going to see another drop off maybe for another year or two I, he hasn't had many carries over these over these previous two years so his body hasn't been uh taking a pounding yes he struggled with the injuries but this is a guy that I think on a team like Denver that has shown that they are willing to ride these veteran guys like Peyton Manning. They put him back in in his worst season ever uh, over Brock Osweiler because, you know, that that's kind of what they do. And they can afford to do it. Their defense is, is that good. I, I think Jamal Charles is a guy where if, if C.J. Anderson struggles with injuries as he has pretty much throughout his career. C.J. Anderson is going to struggle one way or the other. It's either to stay healthy or to be efficient. The opportunity is absolutely there for either Jamal Charles or Devontae Booker to be that satellite back plus back and get a 50% opportunity share and the majority of the running back targets and be the most productive of the Denver running backs. It's not a high bar to be the most productive Denver running back this year, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's easy to see. It's an easy case to weave. Also, we're not doctors. So just looking at a guy's knee on Instagram, we can't diagnose how many fantasy points he's going to score. You got to look at the ADPs too and the differences between one year to the next. Like last year, we saw Jamal Charles and he had questions about his knee and he's still going in the second round. And now he's going in the 12th or, or later. And when you see guys like that, usually it's an overcorrection. And, mm. you know, Jamal Charles has that, he has the same, because remember, even in KC, you know, there were times when, you know, even with Jamal Charles, you know, being that guy where there are always a few questions about like, oh, well, is he, is, can he max out his workload? You know, is he really going to get that same workload as the top backs in the league? He wasn't always necessarily there. So the situation isn't necessarily that different in Denver. If Jamal Charles can remain healthy throughout camp and he come and he comes into week one healthy it's Woo. easy it's easy to see him getting you know five uh 15 12 to 15 touches a game even if cj anderson were healthy because i think that team you know there's word that they're going to be pass happy but i don't know if i'm buying that necessarily just yet i mean they're they're a wide receiver injury away from having almost you know nothing in in the passing game so right. i think you're going to see a lot of a lot of running back usage pretty good game script Take a flyer. Yeah. Take a flyer, man. Well, Jamal Charles is the most elegant runner in the NFL. No one is more pleasing to the eye to watch run the football than Jamal Charles. So just on that alone, just on the aesthetics of the player, draft Jamal Charles. Now, a lot of 
fantasy gamers do not believe that the slot receiver is aesthetically pleasing. They think the slot receiver lacks upside. You hear that all the time, and I object to it all the time. So when you look around the league at slot receivers and possession receivers, who's the most undervalued? Because that's the whole conversation we're having. It's a value conversation. Of the aging running backs, you think Jamal Charles is the best value. Of the slot receivers, who's the best value? That's easy. It's got to be... Cole Beasley. Cole Beasley. Yes! 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 It's... And it's so... It's so... Maybe it's not sexy. It's so straightforward, man. It's just so straightforward. If you know what to look for, it's just all green lights this season for Cole Beasley. Right. It's... Let's look at what happened last season. The Only the Super Bowl teams played with... Right. ...reads more than the Dallas Cowboys in terms of total number of plays. Only the Patriots and the Falcons played with leads more than the Dallas Cowboys. All that, with all of that happening, Cole Beasley caught 75 passes. Like That must have been the most quiet 75-catch season that I have seen in a, in, a, in a really, really long time. So this year, just on, you know, natural game script regression, you know, Kobe, and it, it seems like, it also seems like, hey, you know, maybe that was kind of an outlier after all, Des Bryant, you know, missed some games. But in reality, Des Bryant only missed three games. And still had eight touchdowns. Right. So it's not like, oh, my God, Des Bryant, if he's healthy, Cole Beasley is going to disappear. This is going to be a situation where Dallas will probably throw more, not just because of natural game script regression, but because it is year two of Dak Prescott. And look how impressive he was last season. Will his efficiency likely regress a bit? Sure, it could regress in terms of his rate stats. You know, it was really it's really tough for any quarterback to have the kind of season he did last season. But at the same time. You have a situation where let's let's look at the NFC East. Let, let's let's look at the fact that the Dallas Cowboys are going to play four games against four games combined against the New York Giants and the Washington Redskins. Des Bryant is known. This is a fact. Des Bryant destroys bad cornerbacks, mm. but the Giants have Janoris Jenkins. He shut Des Bryant down last year. Shut him down completely in two games. Des Bryant did absolutely zero. That was so weird. And and then you have Josh Norman, who we know he's one of the best cornerbacks in the league. So that's four games against top flight competition at the cornerback position. And just and there's other games where if you look at the schedule, it, it may be difficult for for Des Bryant to truly get off if he continues to struggle against these top, you know, against these top flight corners. And then who is going to, I mean, Dallas plays, they play the Denver Broncos in, in week two. They start with the Giants. They play the Broncos in week two. We know Aqib Tlaib, you know, that, that's another guy that you, you could put on Des Bryant. You, week three, you got Patrick Peterson, um, another guy, 
doesn't give up much production, Jesus. isn't targeted much. Um, then you know you're gonna have you're gonna have games you know against KC and Atlanta where you got Peters, you got Trufant, those guys. You know more good corners. You got Richard Sherman and, and the Seahawks in the fantasy uh, championship week in week 16. You know why not put Richard Sherman on Des Bryant? I know the Seahawks don't always shadow, but they have done it from time to time. And if you're ever gonna put Richard uh, Richard Sherman on somebody, you know the size matches up there. Des Bryant. It could be a tough season for for Des in terms of getting a bunch of targets, you know, Dak Prescott, you know, Dez got his touchdowns last year, but Dak Prescott was careful not to overdo it with the targets to Dez Bryant. Dez Bryant only got 96 in, in 13 games. So Cole Beasley is a guy where that's, that's the number two option right now in Dallas. He's the, he's the guy. Terrence Williams is a one dimensional kind of, he'll run some fly routes for the most part, maybe a few in breaking, but he's not going to command a high target share. He could always have those outlier season where he scores eight touchdowns touchdowns but uh, uh, catch some deep balls but Cole Beasley 75 catches last season if the Cowboys regress and Des Bryant has some trouble um because he the defense is paying the most attention to him Cole Beasley could be your arbitrage play on Jamison Crowder oh yeah Cole Beasley is a better priced version of Jamison Crowder without the super high ceiling but they have similar floors it's crazy how late you can get Cole Beasley Do you want to know what bothers me? Is that I don't own much Cole Beasley in leagues that matter to me, but I get him in every single one of these expert mock drafts that don't matter at all. I feel like I own Cole Beasley everywhere because of these goddamn mocks, and then I don't actually own him many places. (laughs) It's frustrating. That's frustrating. That's a little inside baseball fantasy analyst frustration for the audience there. When you look at the Dallas Cowboys, we think their passing game is pointed up. What about the Chargers passing game? Most of these players have depressed ADPs, yet I think the entire passing game is going to reach heights they may have never reached before, especially in the efficiency department. What do you think? I agree. I think Phillip Rivers, first of all, before we even get into the receivers, Phillip Rivers has to be one like the late round quarterback this year, right? He's the guy. He's my late round quarterback. If I don't get him, I'm okay with Dalton. I'm okay with Carson Palmer, but give me the Rivers. Yeah, and 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 I'm I like Carson Palmer. So I'm a little worried about Dalton because we know that he needs those around him to be good for Dalton to be good and. A lot of people are making a, a lot of noise about, okay, well, everything's back to normal. He's got, you know, he, he's, Eifert could be healthy, and he's got Ross, and everything should be fine, and he should go back to being that kind of high upside quarterback. But in reality, Ross has missed pretty much all of the offseason uh, workouts. So when I see a rookie that has not been practicing with his quarterback, that gives me pause for that mm-hmm. rookie's immediate impact. Eifert, we still don't know if he's truly healthy yet. And the, the biggest thing about that is kind of the offensive line. They lost they lost, they lost Whitworth, the left tackle. So uh, if Dalton's offensive line is struggling, he's been one of the worst QBs under pressure. Um, so I, I think I think you got to go with Phillip Rivers here. Oh, yeah, because Phillip Rivers, as you said, he's proven to be productive with Dontrell Inman and Travis Benjamin. Yeah. Imagine what he can do with Keenan Allen. Tyrell Williams, Antonio Gates, Hunter Henry, all healthy and playing at a high level where you have the Inmans and the Benjamins playing auxiliary roles. It it's wheels up for it's wheels up for Philip Rivers in a big way this year. Now, who in the passing game do you think is the most undervalued of the receivers? Probably of the receivers, I I think you have to you have to say 
uh, Tyrell just because House Tyrell. <laughs> he's still in that middle to late round kind of situation where you're not exactly sure, you know, you know, do I draft Hunter Henry? Do I draft Tyrell? Keenan Allen's still going pretty high. Well, you're not drafting Hunter Henry. Basically draft everyone but Hunter Henry. That's the rule of thumb. And that's the, yeah, that's the touchdown regression candidate at the tight end position. I mean, he scored seven touchdowns oh, yeah. on 16 red zone on, on, on 16 red zone targets and only 36 uh, total receptions. So as good as Hunter Henry is and will be in this league, it's just going to be difficult again for him to repeat that that touchdown potential. But but with Rivers, I mean, he could really have he could outside another guy outside shot. He could lead the league in touchdown passes. Yeah, you have Henry, you have Gates, and, yeah. and I think if you're talking about if you're talking about receivers, and again another super unsexy pick. But if you're especially in these these best ball leagues and things like that, if Antonio Gates is like your your tight end three or something, I mean. Antonio Gates is still... He's my tight end too, bro. My tight ends in so many leagues are the fuck you tight ends of fantasy football. Witten and Gates, fuck you. 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 And I'll raise you Kobe Fleener on that too. There it is. That's the third. Yes. We'll win with the tight ends. Nobody likes. Why? Because fuck you. Yeah, take... Look, tight ends, they tend to be... In a lot of situations, you know, you have there's two type of tight ends that kind of can produce value um, above where they're drafted. Usually, there's the tight end that just comes into a, a higher volume role um, by necessity. Think of a guy like uh, C.J. Fedorowicz. What people are projecting for Jack Doyle this year? Yeah, and, and, and I don't have that much because I think Doyle kind of fits th- this mold a little bit. But the, right. the, the the mold I was gonna say is the mold of there's the other tight ends that will outproduce value. Other the tight ends that are just tied to good quarterbacks, and that's what Gates is. He's tied to good a good quarterback, and he's gonna get red zone targets. Kobe Fleener, frustrating player, no doubt about it. But Drew Brees can if Drew Brees can make a thirty some odd year old Ben Watson into a top eight fantasy tight end, Yes. then he could do the same for, for Kobe Fleener. So those are the guys where you're sitting there in the late rounds and you don't want to, you don't want to blow a pick on a tight end early. You think, you know, there could be some, maybe Travis Kelsey's upside, like you said, is a little cap this year um, until 2018. You know, he, he had an outlier season last year and still managed to be, you know, outscored on a per game basis by Jordan Reed. So, you know, there's guys that where these early tight end picks, they're, they're, some of their floors or, or even their ceilings could be a little concerning. So you you kind of want to wait, you know, take your shot, maybe draft two of them, draft a Fleener and a Gates or a Fleener or, or a Witten or even, a, you know, even a Doyle. Um, as long as Andrew Luck is playing, Andrew Luck throws about 30 percent of his, his touchdowns to the tight end position. So, I mean, that's where we have all these tight ends clustered at yeah. 12. There's Witten, then Fedorowicz, Gates, Doyle. Fleener. That's the cluster right there. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings where you can get tight ends that are ascending into roles that command volume or are tethered to exceptional quarterback play. That's the great value. You get two of those guys in a draft. One of them is going to produce tight end one numbers this season. Book it. Just book it. Just book it. Book it. An underrated aspect of the strategy you just mentioned, which is just drafting two of those guys late and and holding on to them and, and kind of maybe playing them based on matchup. A really underrated factor in in doing that is that, and, and I've I've learned this from playing DFS um, and doing so much research in, into to DFS daily fantasy, 
tight ends. You might not expect it. You know, we kind of expect this with quarterbacks and running backs, but tight ends actually have the most drastic home road splits and favor underdog splits of all the positions. So about two thirds of tight ends uh, score more touchdowns when they're at home and they score more touchdowns when they're favorites. And if they're home favorite, well, even better. So you could kind of play these matchups streaming tight ends the same way you would maybe a kicker or a defense or a quarterback mm-hmm. where you're just looking for the favorite. You're looking for the guy at home and you're kind of you, you, maybe you're not even looking at the, the, the fantasy matchup necessarily that much. You're just looking unless it's the Kansas City Chiefs because they tend to shut down tight ends every year with Eric Berry. But you're just kind of looking for that that guy that you can, you know, has has a good Vegas line is at home and, and you, you stream and, and you right. could you could get yourself a really good um, end of the season tight end finish by, by doing that. Yeah, you just don't blow your pick on an OJ Howard, a Hunter Henry, a Cameron Brait. Just don't blow these picks. Just pick the guys that no one thinks is sexy and play the matchups. That's how you do it. Now, who's a player that you think the fantasy community has essentially forgotten? Just was sexy at one point, but now it's like he doesn't exist. Who could roar back this year? A post-hype sleeper is a, is a common terminology. Who's that guy? Well, I think there's a couple, uh, and they kind of fit into different categories. Um, in terms of the true post-hype sleeper, I like Paul Richardson a lot because I th- we just got word that he's running with the ones in practice. Now, Tyler Lockett is still out, so you know, that's something to keep in mind. But the problem... I'm shaking right now. I'm shaking. I'm so happy you're choosing Paul Richardson. So Paul Richardson is a guy that you qualify for truther status on. Yeah, and, you know, I try, yes, uh, honestly, yes, I try not to get... I try not to get too high or low on, on anybody just because... Oh, get high on this guy. Get high on Paul Richardson. He's a starter! He's been working out with Russell Wilson the entire offseason. I follow Russell Wilson on Instagram just to look for hints of Paul Richardson. He was a high draft pick. He struggled with injuries, but we actually know that from year to year, there is no... Essentially, no, it's maybe you know .03 or something like that. Um, TJ Hernandez of 444 did a study... There's no correlation year to year in, in games played. So a lot of what we think is this injury proneness is really just variance. It's really just randomness, right? Yeah, I can give you the list of injury prone players right here. It's Adrian Peterson for reasons we've already outlined. It's Alshon Jeffrey because the incredible quantity of lower body injuries and potential PED use early in his career and Jordan Reed because of head trauma. That's it. That's the list of injury-prone guys. It's one at every position. Stop with a tired injury-prone narrative. It holds no fucking weight. Sorry, go ahead. So Richardson, <laughs> we saw what he did in the, in the, play, in the postseason last season. Like, he flashed. He produced. He produced... He, he, he caught he caught quite a few touchdowns in the postseason last year. He 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 played well. Jermaine Curse three point six oh, adjusted uh, yards per attempt from Russell the Wilson worst. last year. It was. I'm gonna change his name on PlayerProfiler.com. They're just the worst. If you think about Jermaine Curse, it's it, it's fitting that they should change the spelling of his last name to C U R S E. Right, because isn't it fitting that? His top career highlight, the, the Super Bowl catch, the ball essentially caught him. And then his his second his second best career highlight, his second best career highlight was only made possible because Russell Wilson got picked 
like four times trying to throw to him previously to the point where in the most important play of the season, in the most important play of the season for the Green Bay Packers in the NFC Championship game against the Seattle Seahawks in 2015, the most important play of the season because every play in that overtime is by definition the most important play the most important play they left Jermaine Curse one on one in the most no safety help okay he caught a touchdown great Russell Wilson put the ball where it needs to be fine his two career highlights are literally only made possible by you know luck and the fact that he is not a very good receiver. So Paul Richardson has been running ahead of Jermaine Curse. Tyra Lockett, I like Tyra Lockett. Don't get me wrong. Tyra Lockett should be out there. But remember, Doug Baldwin, the Seahawks' top receiver, is a slot receiver. So if you're talking about two wide sets, Tyra Lockett is a guy who's been struggling with injury, and the Seahawks have always kind of used him as a situational player. He's Tyra Lockett has never been a 100%, 90%, 100% snap wide receiver. He was way overdrafted last year. We still don't know exactly how he's going to come back right away off the injury. He could be he could be playing, but that doesn't mean he's going to be 100%. That doesn't mean he's going to be used uh, as a full-time guy. I'm raising my hand. I overdrafted him last year. <sighs> I mean, it, it happens. It happens. It happens. I was out over my skis with the entire Seahawks offense last season. It made, it made sense. I mean, I, 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 I didn't really have any shares of uh, J- Jimmy Graham last year, and I, I regret that. It wasn't that I was taking Lockett, but I also wasn't taking um, Graham. So that, 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 that was a bad decision by me. I didn't trust him coming off that injury. I- it ended up working out having Baldwin, Graham, and Lockett really only Lockett underperformed expectations. So it actually worked out fine. Right, yeah, it's it's it, and this year I think you know Richardson's essentially free in oh, almost yeah. any, any, even <laughs> even in best ball you could pretty much get him in the twentieth in the twentieth round. So when you're looking at the late round receivers, best ball in particular, once Cole Beasley's off the board, for me it's J.J. Nelson and it's Paul Richardson because they are similar assets on teams that are going to throw the ball deep and they can score a bunch of long touchdowns this season. Right. It's like it's kind of like he could have a a Kenny Stills type season, you know, uh, which which, it could be an outlier. But at the same time, it's possible because Russell Wilson is one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the league in terms of whatever you think of him. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. He's, He's one of the most efficient. Let's remember who Russell Wilson is. Russell Wilson is not his 2016 stats. It's all those efficiency metrics leading up to 2016. That's how I choose to view Russell Wilson. That's the prism through which I view Russell Wilson. I zoom out and I see one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the league. And if you include his ability to run the ball, the most efficient. Russell Wilson has been one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the National Football League. Throwing to Jermaine Curse. efficient while throwing to Jermaine Curse all these like all these years like it, it wasn't even until last year that Curse regressed to to his Jermaine Curse mean yes. <laughs> do me a favor Chris let's go out on that do me a favor start again 
but finish it with some gusto. He did it throwing to Jermaine Curse. Say it again. Russell Wilson has been one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the National Football League. Throwing to Jermaine Curse. Love it, man. Yes, he stuck the landing. <laughs> That's the way to do it, buddy. Love it, man. We did it. Good show. Good show. The fuck you tight ends of fantasy football. Witten and Gates, fuck you. 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 We'll win with the tight ends nobody likes. Why? Because fuck you. Tight ends. You might not expect it. You know, we kind of expect this with quarterbacks and running backs, but tight ends actually have the most drastic home road splits and favor underdog split of all the positions. I'm thinking, man, you're blowing my mind, man. This is the official state radio program of the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland weather next. (laughs) Remind Kevin White that he used to be good. (laughs) That he used to be good at football. That his confidence is at such a low point. Fail, 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 fail. You know, there are bad players. You could talk about a bad player like Seth Roberts. (laughs) You can talk about a good player like Paul Richardson. The show is notorious for negative bending rants. However, the actual audience knows that on a per minute basis of the podcast, we're much more focused on group celebrations of guys we love. One question about guy you hated a while back. You're not allowed to say Baldwin because I've had three fucking guys in a row say Baldwin. And it's like, all right, you got to think of someone else. <laughs> so I've been wrong on DeMarco Murray like every step of the way. I kind of went back and I was looking and like I started noticing like every time he like the Eagles just had him running out of the sh- out of shotgun like sideways. And I'm like, yo, this big dude is not like this is not how you're supposed to use him. And they're like, oh, well, the Titans are just going to run him out of the I formation. And I was like, oh, well, that actually might work. Impressive yards per target with Ryan Tannehill. There aren't many wide receivers can do that. Even Kenny Stills has his yards per target depressed with Ryan Tannehill. And somehow Rashard Matthews was fine. <laughs> what a testament. The highest Andy Reid running back draft pick since Niall Davis. I'll just say it. I'll just say it. Blunt's a joke. Wearing one of those old-timey hats and like a grainy photograph, that's... Jack Doyle, that's Chester Rogers, that's Mitchell Trubisky. You just can't get excited about these guys because they're just these nameless, faceless henchmen in this grainy photo, and it's just difficult to get excited. We're more likely to have a conversation with a little person than a member of the opposite sex. (laughs) That's how the probabilities shake out. You, raising your hands, put your hand down! Put your hand down! You, put your hand down! He did not throw a touchdown pass to a wide receiver for 16 games. That happened. Zero touchdowns to wide receivers in 2015. That happened. Exactly. Exactly. Wendall Williams. W-E-N-D-A-L-L Williams. 
They should change the spelling of his last name to C-U-R-S-E. The, the Super Bowl catch, the ball essentially caught him. The most important play, they left Jermaine Curse one-on-one. And the most, no safety help. Fail, 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 fail.